Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 1. The writer of this book was Jesus' half-brother. He was the second oldest son in Joseph and Mary's household. And he spent the majority of his life as an unbeliever, according to John 7, 5, a rather outspoken unbeliever. In fact, in Mark 3, 21, he called Jesus crazy. And then about the age of 30, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that he saw his brother after he had risen from the dead. And the skeptic became a believer. The mocker became an outspoken proponent of Jesus. The one who competed with and envied his older brother all his life became, as he says in verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus. That's the Greek word doulos, literally a slave of Jesus. And he calls him Lord Jesus. You see, his faith radically transformed his life. So much so that he was nicknamed James the Just as a reflection of his character. He was nicknamed Camel Knees as a depiction of his committed prayer life. And he was killed for his faith in about 62 A.D., But about 13 years before he was martyred, James sat down and he wrote this book. And his message is, make your faith a living reality. Get Christianity into your life. Let's take Christianity out of the Sunday morning dressed up clothes and let's put it in overalls and work boots. Let's take it out of the pristine element of Sunday morning and let's get it into our daily lives. He says, I want you to take those truths that you already know and I want you to put some shoe leather on them. And I want you to walk them out in your day-to-day life. And in the first century, James' message is going out as he says in verse 1, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And then he calls them in verse 2, my brethren. He's writing to the 12 tribes. He's writing to Jews like himself who have become believers in Jesus Christ. And they have now been scattered out of Jerusalem by persecution. And so they were really being persecuted from every angle. They were hated by the Romans because they were Jews. And now they're hated by their fellow Jews because they're Christians. So they're getting a double portion of persecution. And so as James writes this book, he doesn't mess around. He jumps right into the topic that is foremost on their minds. He meets them right where they are. And so he tells them and us 
how to deal with suffering, how to deal with trials, how to deal with problems. Verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's kind of startling, especially to a Jewish mind. He says, when you have trials, smile. He doesn't even come in softly. He doesn't say, I'm sorry about your problems, but, you know, I feel your pain. But, no, he just says, count it joy when you have problems. Now, that sounds strange to the Jewish mind. It also sounds strange to most Americans today. The Jewish mindset was that there was a direct correlation between troubles and sin. There was always a direct correlation between affliction and wrongdoing. All tragedy was cause and effect. So if something bad happened, then you must have done something bad. And we still think that way today. I hear people go through difficult times and they say, I don't know what I did wrong. Or we look at someone else who's suffering. You're talking about your grandmother who you admire so much and you say, I don't know why this would happen to her. She's such a good person. And so we think in terms of cause and effect. If there's something going wrong, then somebody must have done something wrong. Let me show you what Jesus said about that. In Luke chapter 13, great passage for you to look at and dwell on. Luke chapter 13, chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is preaching to many thousands of people at this point in time. And in chapter 13, in verse 1, it says, now on the same occasion, there were some, some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with his sacrifices. Now you've got to remember, in that day, they didn't have CNN. Didn't have smartphones. So Jesus is preaching, and he gets a, a report about some breaking news. Some Galileans went up to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem, and Pilate sacrificed them. They went up to worship, and they got massacred. Jesus listens to the report, and then he asks a question in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Because some died and others were spared, do you think that the ones that died were greater sinners than the ones that got spared? And their answer would be, yes. That's the way they thought. That's the way Job's friends thought back in the book of Job. When everything was going wrong in his life, they came and said, fess up. You had to do something wrong or all these things wouldn't be happening in your life. That was the Jewish mentality. So Jesus hears about this catastrophe, and he says, do you think that these guys were greater sinners? Well, of course they do. 
And then notice Jesus' answer. As they're nodding their heads, yes, Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What happened to them was not because they were greater sinners. And then Jesus points out, the judgment is not a present thing. It is a future thing. The real judgment isn't going to come from Pilate today. The real judgment is going to come from God tomorrow. And God's not going around this world looking for lesser sinners. So he can say, oh, I'll keep you from that accident, but this guy's a greater sinner, I'm going to let him crash. God's not going around this world looking for lesser sinners. God is going around this world looking for who? Those who repent. Judgment is not today. When you see something happening in someone's life, you can't say, well, that's because they're a greater sinner than I am. When the earthquake happened in Haiti, I heard some Americans saying, well, that happened because they were into witchcraft. God was judging them. How arrogant. How arrogant. We live in a country steeped in idolatry, and we're saying, oh, God was probably judging them because they're so sinful. That's the mindset of the Jew. That's the mindset of many Americans today. That's the mindset of many people in this room as you sit here. On Tuesday of this week, one of my professors from Bible college, a man named Dave Reed, was skiing in Utah. He's a guy who has spoken at this church before. He was skiing in Utah didn't arrive when he was supposed to to meet his friends and they went out to search for him and they found his body at the bottom of a cliff dead from a ski accident what do we conclude from that he must have done something wrong he wasn't as righteous as me because I didn't die in a ski accident no the reality is when I go skiing I usually stay on the green slopes See, there is no cause and effect. Be careful. That's why Jesus said, judge not. Be careful that you don't say, okay, calamity is happening to you. I'm more holy than you are. And I would say to you that that is the one attitude that Jesus hated more than any other, was self-righteousness. Don't try to put cause and effect into calamities that happen in people's lives. And then Jesus offers another illustration in verse 4. He says, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Tower of Siloam fell over in Jerusalem. It landed on 18 guys who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And Jesus says, do you think that happened to those 18 because they were worse culprits or literally worse debtors than the other guy, the guy who the tower fell and killed his friend and he's still standing there? Does he go, Bob should have got his life together. Did it happen because those people were worse sinners? And Jesus says again, In verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. (laughs) hear people joke about this all the time. You know, somebody does something or says something, and we back up and go, "Uh uh-oh, better get back, the lightning's going to strike. Like God is judging people today for their sin. Be very careful when you try to make a cause and effect related to the difficulties in someone's life. John chapter 9, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus was walking along and he stopped and he looked at a blind man. A man who was born blind. Jesus stopped and he looked at the man and the disciples had to stop too and so they're kind of thinking to themselves, hmm, This doesn't fit our theology of suffering. So they asked Jesus a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, because he's born blind? That's a problem. When you're born blind, the question is, did he sin in the womb? Is that how he came out this way? Or did his parents sin and you caused him to be blind because of his parents? Somebody has to be guilty here. we got to point at somebody Who is it, him or his parents? And Jesus says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Suffering is not always directly related to sin in a person's life. Now, sometimes it is. If you get drunk and get behind the wheel and have an accident, that's a direct result of your sin. But for the most part, you can't make that correlation. Sometimes difficulties, sickness, injury is simply an opportunity for God to be glorified. For God to work his works in your life. Now, James readers sort of got this, but he takes it a step further. In fact, he takes it a big step further. James doesn't just say, stop looking at troubles as a negative. He says, start looking at troubles as a positive. James not only says, stop complaining and blaming and finger pointing, he says, start rejoicing. And if you look at verse 2, he says you are to consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Your translation may say temptations. That's because it's the Greek word parosmos. It's a broad term that includes both ideas. It has both the idea of outward trials, like a tower falling on you, and it has the idea of inward temptations to sin. 
And really, to understand which aspect it's related to, you look at the context. And I think in this passage, we're going to see as we go through chapter 1, that in verses 2 to 12, he's focusing on the outward aspect of these, these uh, parosmos, the trials. In verses 13 to 18, he says, when you're tempted, don't say you're tempted by God. There he's talking about the inner temptation. So in 2 to 12, we would use the word trials. In verses 13 to 18, the word temptations. And so what I want us to see this morning is that James points out some important things that we need to understand about trials in these first few verses. The first is, trials are unexpected. They're unexpected. Look at verse 2. Let me get back to James. He says, Consider it all joy, when you encounter various trials. Now, my translation says encounter. Actually, the King James was better on this. The King James says you fall into, I think it said diver's temptation. I never understood that part. I thought that was a swimming pool. But anyway, it says fall into, which is a better translation than mine because It's the same expression Jesus used in Luke chapter 10 when he gave us the account of the Good Samaritan. And he said, a man set out on a journey to Jericho and he fell among robbers. You see, he never anticipated that. It was unexpected. And that's the way trials are. You're going along smoothly in life and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unexpectedly, you fall into a trial. You can't plan on trials. You won't find them in your daytimer. Tuesday, ah, no, I can't make it. I'm going to have a flat tire at 1 o'clock. Trials come unexpectedly. You can't anticipate them. When I was a kid, I used to watch Candid Camera. At the end of Candid Camera, they'd always warn you. And they would say at the end of the show, when you least expect it, someone may walk up to you and say, smile, you're on candid camera. Well, that's the way it is with trials. When you least expect them, you fall into them. And that's what makes problems problems. They're inconvenient. They come just when you didn't expect them and didn't want them. They come, they come unexpectedly. Second thing about trials Trials are diverse. Look again at verse 2 and notice the word various. A word that means a variety. Literally, it's a Greek word that means multicolored. Trials come in all shapes, all colors, all sizes, all shades. My favorite example of a trial is one I heard about many years ago. It's a man who writes a letter to his employer, and here's the letter. When I got to the building, I found that the hurricane had knocked off some bricks around the top, so I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted up a couple of barrels full of bricks. When I had fixed the damaged area at the top, there was still a lot of bricks left over, so I went to the bottom and began to release the line holding the barrel full of bricks. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was much heavier than I was. 
And before I knew what was happening, the barrel of bricks started coming down fast, jerking me up. I decided to hang on since I was too far off the ground by then to jump. And halfway up, I met the barrel of bricks coming down fast. I received a hard blow to the shoulder. I then continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers caught in the pulley. When the barrel crashed to the ground, it burst its bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the barrel. So I started down again at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up fast and received severe injuries to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the pile of bricks, getting several painful cuts and deep bruises. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the line. The barrel came down fast, giving me another blow on the head and putting me into the hospital. I respectfully request sick leave. That's a trial. Maybe you've had some strange trials in your day. They come in a multitude of colors. There are little trials like flunking a test. Little trials like having an empty mailbox or email box. Little trials like tearing your favorite sweater. Little trials like getting up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom and you stub your toe on the bedpost. Little trials like a bad call by an official. A few months ago, my daughter Lindsay was home and she passed out in the kitchen and fell and hit her head on the hardwood floor. I rushed to her side, just missed catching her. And to compound the trial of her being injured, I was ironing at the time left the iron on my favorite shirt, which is now my ex-favorite shirt. (laughs) Those are trials. I always dread teaching the book of James because I know as soon as I start teaching James, I'm going to have trials. On Thursday, this is probably more information than you want to know, but on Thursday... I woke up with a hemorrhoid. And then to compound things, I got the stomach flu and had what we call at our house the big D. I am thankful for Preparation H. (laughs) Those are little trials. There are also bigger trials. You can have something stolen from you. You can be in an automobile accident. You can experience the death of a loved one. Little trials, big trials. Some trials are quick. They come and they're gone. Other trials linger. 
Some of you are married to one. Some trials come and they last a lifetime. Remember, Paul had that thorn in his flesh and he prayed three times that God would take it away and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. I want you to keep that trial in your life. They come in all shapes and sizes and colors. Trials are diverse. Thirdly, Trials are inevitable. I want you to look at verse 2 again and notice it doesn't say if you encounter various trials. It says when you encounter various trials. Please understand this. Trials are not optional. Trials are like death and taxes. You can count on them. I can guarantee you today that you will have trials. In fact, there are three kinds of people in this room right now. There are those of you who are in a trial, those of you who just came out of a trial, and those of you who are about to fall into a trial. So don't sit back and say, this message isn't for me. This message is for everybody. You don't know what that next phone call is going to bring you. Trials are inevitable. If you don't have problems right now, just wait. Just wait. Trials are not optional. They're not an elective course in the Christian life. You're going to go through them. James addresses this letter to God's scattered people, not God's sheltered people. And the Christian who thinks the Christian life is going to be easy is in for a shock. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise. In this world you will have trouble. And Paul said in Acts 14, 22, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Everyone has trials. Even unbelievers have trials. No one is immune. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter says, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised by them. Trials are inevitable. They're going to happen in your life. You don't have to go out looking for them. They are going to find you. You say, wow, Dan, this is an encouraging message. I am guaranteed to fall into all kinds of trials. Well, then let's go to the fourth point because this is so important. If you don't get this, you're not going to get life. Fourth point, trials are valuable. Pain can be productive. Pressure can produce positive things. Suffering can accomplish something good. 
trials have value in our lives. You say, well, what value? What good are trials? Well, in verses 3 to 4, James points to three values, three purposes of problems. And I want you to see these. First of all, problems improve your faith. Notice what he calls them in verse 3. He calls it the testing of your faith. One of the purposes of trials is to test your faith. If your faith is genuine, when is it going to be demonstrated to be genuine? Well, in the trials of life, in times of trouble. You see, genuine faith is not simply a fair-weather faith. Genuine faith will endure the storms of life. And when, you, when do you discover that your faith is genuine? And when do you discover that your faith will endure the storms of life? Only in the storms of life. You see, if you've got a faith that is no good in times of trouble, then you've got a faith that is no good. Jesus said that in the parable of the sower. You remember what he said in Luke 8, 13? He said, and those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation... They fall away. That word temptation is the Greek word parosmos. Same word James uses. When the test of trials came, that faith did not hold up. The trials that came into their life revealed that they did not have genuine saving faith. Now don't misunderstand me. Trials cannot destroy faith. Trials can simply test faith. Trials simply test your faith to show whether it's real or not. Have you ever noticed that when trials come, you have a greater sensitivity to the presence of God? You ever notice that when trials come into your life, your prayer life gets a little better? Do you ever notice that when trials come into your life, you tend to be opening the Scriptures and looking for some verses, some word from God to meet you where you are? That's because those trials are proving your faith to be genuine. And that's always God's goal in testing. In fact, the word testing is the Greek word dokimos. And the word literally means approved. He's not really testing because he doesn't know whether you've got genuine faith. He is testing you to show that your faith is approved, to demonstrate the reality of your faith. When archaeologists dig up pots in the Middle East, they will oftentimes look on the bottom of the pot and they will see this word, dokimos. 
approved through the fire. You see, a potter would, would shape a pot out of clay and make it just the way he wanted it to be. And then he would put it in the oven, he would put it over the fire and let it sit there for just the right amount of time. And when he took it out of the oven and it didn't crack, he would stamp on the bottom, Dakamas, approved. Now the potter never put the pot in the oven and said, let's see how much this pot can take. I'm going to crank up the fire and just see how much it takes to crack this pot. No. You see, the potter knew exactly how much heat it took to make that pot the best pot it could be, to make that pot come out and receive the stamp approved. I would suggest that that's what God does with us. He tests us for the purpose of approval. He knows exactly how much heat you need to make you all that you can be for him. He knows just how much heat you need to receive that word dakamas, approved. And yet so oftentimes, what do we do? God puts us in the heat and we jump out. We try to find a shortcut out of it. And God has a purpose. He's testing you for approval in your life. In fact, look over a few pages at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter uses a similar illustration. In verses 3 to 5, he describes our wonderful salvation And then in verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, in this great salvation you rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. There they are again. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Now here he uses the illustration of gold. A goldsmith in that day would take gold, and if you know anything about gold, gold is heavier than any other material. And so he would take maybe a, a, a piece of metal that he knew had gold in it, and he would put it in a crucible, and he would put it over the flame, and he would melt it down. And when he melted it down, the the gold would sink to the bottom and the dross would come to the top and he would scrape off the dross and keep heating it up and scrape off the dross until he got down to purer gold. And so the flame not only proved that the gold was genuine, it improved the gold by making it more pure. And so when God puts you in the flame, the trials, that's his purpose. He wants to show everyone that your faith is real, prove it, but he also wants to improve it and make your faith stronger by going through those trials. Second reason 
problems build your endurance. Notice verse 3 again. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Now the word endurance here comes from two Greek words. And it means literally to remain under. Trials give you the capacity to remain under. And again, our our first instinct is to what? Find a detour. Exit stage left. Get out of this thing. And God's saying, my purpose is that you build endurance to allow you to stay under that trial, to hang in there, to be steadfast, to be strong. Our prayer is often, God, get me out of this. And God may be saying to you, I want you right where you are because I want to build endurance in your life. I like to lift weights. You wouldn't know it because I I go on spurts. I I lift weights for a while and then I quit. And then I lift weights for a while and I quit. And when I go back, it's always the same process. I'll go down to the gym and I'll go in and, and I feel really strong and vibrant. I'm like, this is really easy. Why didn't I do this? And I start pumping iron and and doing curls, and doing squats, and doing the whole thing, and, and uh, get done, and walk out of there, and I feel great, and it never fails. The next day, what I thought was very good has turned into a trial. I can't even walk up steps. I, I can't even button my shirt. I mean, what, why, why, was I crazy? Why would I put myself in that situation? But I have a trainer. He doesn't want me to say his name, but he's on staff here. He he feels I'm not a good advertisement. But that unnamed trainer will say to me, keep on pressing on. Stay in there. Work your way through it and the pain will subside and the process of physical development will occur. But you got to work through the pain. you got to stay under the weights. Don't bail out. In fact, sometimes he says, you're not bringing them down far enough. You're not doing it hard. It's not hurting enough. Stay under the weights. That's literally what this word means. Stay under the weight. See, see, God is like your spotter. God comes and he says, okay, here you go. He puts the weight down on your chest and you say, oh, I don't want to be under this. I want to slide the weights off and get out of here. God's spotting you and he's saying, keep on going. Keep on pushing. Endure, endure. You can do it. And if you'll push up this weight, guess what? You'll move on to bigger weights and be able to endure greater things for God. We're going to stop there today. Trials are going to happen. They're going to come in all kinds of colors and shapes and sizes. It's a guarantee. So you need to understand that trials are valuable. Stop fighting them. Stop associating them always with sin. Somebody did something wrong. 
start realizing that God has a purpose in those things. Not just the big trials, the little trials of life. He has a purpose in those. He wants to test your faith, to show it to be true and to make it more real. And he wants to build endurance in you. There's only one way to do that. And that's to stay under the trial and let God equip you to go through it, not around it, so that he builds that endurance in your life. We're going to close our service by singing together. I can guarantee you that everybody in this room, if you take a moment, can think about a trial in your life right now. Maybe it's happening to you. Maybe it's happening to a loved one. I want you to think about how you're handling that trial. You say, Dan, I'm not rejoicing in it, that's for sure. I'm fighting against it. Maybe you need to view it differently and realize God has placed that in your life for a purpose. And cooperate with God so that you can say, God, not only thank you for this trial, but I rejoice in this trial because I realize the outcome is going to be that I'm going to be somebody whose faith is stronger and someone who can handle more difficulty in my life down the road. Let's stand and sing together, and as we do, maybe you need to talk to the Lord right now about what's going on in your life and switch your view so that you see it from his vantage point.